One Hope Church. Well, so we're going through our series on Forgotten Heroes. Um, I believe everybody's been here for at least one of those. So we're looking at our Forgotten Heroes. We have our list. Um, we started with a Hebrew slave girl known for her faith and compassion. Uh, then we moved to Jonathan, who was brave, humble, and loyal. Uh, we saw the faith and courage of Rahab, the prostitute. Uh, last week, we looked at four unexpected heroes. They didn't expect to be heroes, but the four lepers um, re- recognized the blessing they had received, and they shared it with many. And today, uh, we're going to look at an Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed Melik um, in the book of Jeremiah. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to look at this individual and learn from his life. Uh, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness, your greatness to us. We pray, God, that you would teach us uh, from your word this morning, that we would learn from it, we'd be encouraged by it. Thank you, God, that you love us so much that you gave us your son. We pray that in all things this morning, you and your son will receive glory and honor. Um, through our hearts, through the Holy Spirit, working in us and among us and through us, God. Uh, We thank you um, that your mercy is so incredibly great. Help us to appreciate that this morning. And um, as we look in in this story, um, just to be uh, encouraged by who you are and how you use people's lives and what you do, dear God. And we ask that you would use our lives for your glory and for your honor. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. So uh, we need some context so we can see that the, that the words and actions of, of Ebed Melech are truly heroic and we can get a little bit of context for that. Um, he's linked uh, with Jeremiah the prophet and Jeremiah prophesied uh, during uh, the time when Israel was divided between the northern and southern kingdom. It's the time of Babylonian um, captivity. In 2 Kings chapter 24, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, your Bible for Babylon might say Chaldea, so the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, um, had invaded the land. And at that time, Jehoiakim was the king and became the servant of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, for three years. But then Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And so, so Nebuchadnezzar, of course, wants to settle accounts um, with Jehoiakim. And that's a scene from a human perspective. But with God, there's more to the scene than just a scene from the human's perspective. So in Jeremiah chapter 36 is where we're going to get the scene from God's perspective on the situation. And it says this. It says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, This word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Now we need to stop here before we get into Ebed Melech. We need to stop here and talk about this for a minute. We need to stop here and talk about this for a minute. Especially in today's day and age where we don't preach very much about God's judgment. We don't want to talk very much about God's judgment. We don't want to talk very much about the reality of hell. And we don't want to talk about the, the consequences of sin. Now, why is this? Why, why don't we want to talk about things? Well, they're a little bit unpleasant to talk about, right? It's unpleasant to talk about judgment and hell and consequences for sin. And we're afraid that people will think that God is mean. We're afraid that people will think that God uh, doesn't you know, love us. We're afraid that God will say, well, well, you know, any God that would judge me like that, you know, I don't want to have anything to, to do with, and that they'll reject God. But if we can just tell them, you know, God loves you and wants to be in relationship with you, and if you don't do that, you know, it's kind of, 
you know, that's your choice and it's okay and, you know, everything will be all right in the end. That's kind of what we want to tell people. But we need to be really careful that we're not shortchanging people. And we're not shortchanging God and the gospel. Is it loving to tell people that there's not judgment if there is judgment? Would it be loving for, for Jeremiah the prophet to say, you know, there's a slight probability that things could go bad if we don't repent. But do it kind of just do what you want to do. It'll be all, all good in the end. Would that be loving for Jeremiah to tell his people? No, it wouldn't be at all. But we need to remember that the purpose, what is what does God say? Jeremiah 36, verse 3. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way and then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. So in that, there's an opportunity. You know, if they, if they would just turn from their wickedness and turn to the Lord, they could avoid the calamity. They could avoid the judgment. This is the great mercy of God that his, we see throughout the scriptures that his, his preference is mercy. His preference is compassion. His holiness demands justice. And he's going to have his justice. And he's, you know, that's why, I mean, Jesus had to go to the cross because of the justice, the holiness of God. That the sin, sins of the world had to be paid for and dealt with. God has to have justice in order for his holiness to be maintained. But his love and compassion and mercy, he even takes it upon himself as opposed to give it to us, if at all possible. But yet, the hearts of humans, we're going to see here, terrible in many cases. We need to remember that the purpose of of preaching or sharing about God's judgment is not, you know, oh, you're going to get it, you know, sort of mentality. But it's that people would have an opportunity to turn from their their wickedness. We need to understand that every human heart is full of wickedness. You know, that, that's, that's true. You know, all of us apart from Christ, and even for believers, when we're not walking in the Spirit, what does the flesh naturally gravitate towards? Sin. You know, our, you know we don't want to hear this today. I'm afraid. But you know, because, you know, we want to put everything in such a, a, a positive light, but we're going to pretend there isn't wickedness in our city? We're going to pretend that there isn't wickedness in our, our nation? You're going to pretend that we don't have pride, that we don't have lying and deceit, that we don't have theft, that we don't have gossip, that we don't have murder, that we don't have sexual immorality of every kind? We're not, we're not going to acknowledge that God's going to deal with all of that? And at the same time, that God's preference is the same today as it always has been. His preference is mercy. And notice this, because he said in verse 3, in order that, that every man, and that's not obviously gender specific, but will turn from his evil way. So that's the same thing for today, in order that every human will turn from his or her evil way. Women are wicked too, if you hadn't noticed. Just like men are. But what does the scripture tell us in 2 Peter 3 9? That God is not slow concerning his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. The great mercy of God. So then. What happens after that? Jeremiah takes this scroll and dictates the message from the Lord, and this other man, Barak, writes it down. And at this time, Jeremiah has been banned from the temple, so Barak takes it 
and, and reads it to all the people. And it says this in Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 9. It says, Now in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the seas of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then Barak read from the book of the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gomera, the son of Zophan the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house, to all the people. So this message does go out, and it does go to all the people. And then the message, later on in the chapter, the message is taken to the king. The scroll is even taken to the king. And, it, you know, the scroll, it hasn't even, you know, most of it hasn't been read. Only the first, you know, four or five sections. And then um, the king grabs the scroll, scroll um, tears it with a knife, and throws it into the fire. In verse 30, it says, Therefore, this says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will also punish him and his descendants and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah all the calamity that I have declared to them, but they did not listen. So the king doesn't listen, the king's servants don't listen, the people as a whole, there were a few who listened, but as a whole, the majority of people did not listen. And then when you get to chapter 37, just immediately turn the page, chapter 37, and you read this. Now Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had made king in the land of Judah, reigned as king in the place of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. So, there's been a change. <laughs> right, that, you know, right there. And then verse 2, but listen to this. But neither he, this is a new king, but neither he, nor his servants, nor the people of the land, listen to the words of the Lord which he had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. That's a really sad verse. Because the message was given but it wasn't responded to. Verse 11 says it happened when the army of the Babylonians had lifted the siege from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army that Jeremiah went up from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin in order to take possession or to take possession or to be part of a dividing of some property there among the people. While he was at the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard, whose name was Erijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, was there, and he arrested Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are going over to the Babylonians. But Jeremiah said, A lie, I am not going over to the Babylonians. Yet he would not listen to Jeremiah. So Raja arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. Then the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him. And they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, which they had made into the prison. For Jeremiah had come into the dungeon, that is the vaulted cell, and Jeremiah stayed there many days. So, you know, Jeremiah is a prophet. He, he had it pretty rough sometimes in his, in his life. And this is one of those times. He's being fully obedient to what God has called him to do. But the people of the land and those who are in power of the land do not you know, respect him or his, his role and what God has, has given him to do. And so um, this man, a captain of the guard, is able to have or able to arrest Jeremiah and put him into this prison. And it's kind of interesting, too, where it says um, they put him into the jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, which they had made into a prison. It shows you a little bit of the disrespect going on um, at this time. Where, you, know, you just took this man's house, and they said, we're going to make your house into a prison. <laughs> yeah, that man probably didn't want his house to be a prison. You know, they put this vaulted cell in there. And Jeremiah stayed there many days. He had been beaten. He suffered. And we see this throughout the scriptures that many times the people of God who are doing what, exactly what God has called them to do, 
suffer. And we just contrast that again with the message that is being preached in this world today, which says, you know, you're just guaranteed, you know, do what God wants you to do and you're guaranteed an easy life. I mean, the, the entire biblical record just says that's ridiculous. The entire biblical record says that sometimes following God is very difficult. It's not so popular to hear today either. And, and in fact, I'm afraid that what is preached so often just has very, I mean, other than some of the names, we're going to use the name God and name Jesus, a couple other things, but, I mean, just borrowing some names... And the rest of the narrative is so radically different from the narrative of Scripture. That if you, I mean, that unless you use the same names, you might think it's an entirely different belief set altogether. Rough. In verse 17, it says, Now King Zedekiah sent and took Jeremiah out and in his palace the king secretly asked him and said is there a word from the Lord and Jeremiah said there is he said you will be given to the hand of the king of Babylon and wherever Jeremiah said to the king Zedekiah in what way have I sinned against you or against your servants or against his people that you have put me in prison where then are your prophets who prophesied to you saying the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land but now please listen. O oh, my Lord the King, please let my petition come before you and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe that I may not die there. Then King Zedekiah gave commandment and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse and gave him a loaf of bread daily from the baker's street until all the bread in the city was gone. And so Jeremiah remained in the court of the guardhouse. Now what we learned about King Zedekiah, you're going to see this pretty quick is that Zedekiah is a pretty wishy-washy sort of guy. It's kind of like he's willing to listen to at least a certain degree who, to whoever talked to him last. You got to talk to him, okay, I'll, I'll do that. Another person talks to him, oh, well, I'll change my mind. I'll change my mind again. You know, that's, I mean, you talk about waffling. Like before waffling became a thing in our politics, people talk about waffling. I mean, King Zedekiah, you're going to see here, he's, he's kind of the king of waffling back and forth between positions. Flip-flopping. But, you know, the thing about it is, Zedekiah, and you'll see this, it's like he kind of wants to know. He wants to know, and he wants to, he's wanting to believe Jeremiah if there's good news. He's not really willing to believe Jeremiah though if there's bad news he's going he's gonna to honor his request right here but then verse 38 now listen to this now Jephthah the son of Matan and Gedaliah the son of Pasher and Jokal the son of Shelemiah and Pashur the son of Machaliah heard that the words that Jeremiah was speaking to all the people saying thus says the Lord he who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence but he who goes out to the Babylonians will live and have his own life as a prize, and stay alive. Thus says the Lord, This city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Then the official said to the king, Now let this man be put to death, inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in the city, and all the people, by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. So we have the message of Jeremiah. What is he saying? I mean, this isn't you know, a popular message in any time a city is under siege or in war. It's not a popular message to, to be the one to say, you know what? We're better off to surrender than to fight to the last man because you're going to die by the sword, or you're going to die by famine, or you're going to die by disease. Like, we're better off. God says we're going to be better off. They'll be merciful to us if we surrender. I mean, surrender is not that popular. I mean, let's just be real. Surrender is not that popular a message at any time. And, you know, for these, um, you know, I, w- I would say these are, are pretty nationalistic, you know, people. 
that you know hear these words and they're saying you know this is a a bad message and they say you know from this is their perspective that he doesn't he's not seeking the well-being of this people but rather their harm but Jeremiah is actually seeking the lives of these people that people would be left alive that they would have their life as a prize that they would survive it And then we see, the again, the flip-flopping, verse 5. So King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. And there also we see some admitted weakness in this king. He's like basically saying, the group of you are more powerful than I am, even though he's the one in the position of authority. He's the one that should be having the clear vision and dictating what should happen and not happen and making decisions based on the information that he's given. And, you know, he'd be wise to listen to the true prophet than he is to false prophets or to these, you know, men that have wicked desires in their heart. Because the reality is that King Zedekiah, he knows Jeremiah personally. I mean, he, you know, he has spoken with him. And yet again, when these men come, King Zedekiah says, Behold, he is in your hands. What King Zedekiah and these men fail to realize is that Jeremiah is in God's hands. They can only do to Jeremiah to the extent that God allows them to do to Jeremiah. And we don't understand the ways of God on that. We don't understand why one prophet gets rescued and another dies. Just as today, we don't understand why one person of God you know, seems to not suffer much and another suffers immensely, both doing the will of God. We don't understand God when it comes to those things. We, we, you know, we have to trust Him. And, and to trust His judgment on that but I, I think we're fooling ourselves if we try to say that we could figure it out or understand that. It won't make sense to us. We don't see the whole picture as God sees it. And then it says this. They took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchahad, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. Now, you imagine being Jeremiah. He's already been beaten. He's already been half-starved. <laughs> you know, now he's... Sink, I mean, he's, he's stuck in, I mean, literally, he's stuck in the mud. I mean, like, literally stuck in the mud, in this well. It's, you know, it's nasty. It's dark. It's like, there's not much good here. Like, he's just, I mean, I mean you wouldn't blame him from being just like, seriously? Like, I'm going to go down like this. But verse 7, But Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch, who was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. Now the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin. This is where your know, king would um, have court, sort of thing. And Ebed-Melech went out from the king's palace and spoke to the king, saying, my lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have taken and cast into the cistern, and he will die right where he is because of the famine, for there is no more bread in this city. Now notice what he says, they have done wickedly. Now Ebed Melech at this point, he is willing to risk himself before the king. And he is making a set of very powerful enemies. 
He's making a set of very powerful enemies, multiple powerful enemies, men who the king said, well, I can do nothing because these men are so powerful. But yet, it provoked him, you know, in his heart that he saw this wickedness that was done to Jeremiah, and he had to do something even at the risk of his own life. Now, it's interesting, with Ebimelech, we don't have his backstory. We don't have, like, well, he was born this time in this place, and here's how he got, you know, to where, where he is. I mean, we, again, have to remember that, um, you know, nations, uh, especially here in this time in the Middle East, I mean, there's a lot of interaction we see between nations. You have the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Syrians, you know, all these different groups, all these different people groups within these nations, all these different nations themselves. Um, and so we don't know exactly why he's there. Is he, you know, an, um, an ambassador, you know, for Ethiopia and he's stationed in, in Jerusalem and works with the Hebrews and because the Hebrews are controlled by the Babylonians, he, you know, speaks with them as well. Is he sort of, some sort of ambassador for Ethiopia? Um, was he a convert to Judaism and then moved there? We don't know. You know, we know he's in the in some way or another. He is, you know, has access. He's in the king's court. He's in a powerful, you know, position. Um, a position of at least some responsibility. But we don't know his whole story. But we see his heroic action. It's going to be kind of cool, I think, one day to sit with him and to find out his whole story. Because it says this, So then the king commanded Ebimelech the Ethiopian, saying, Take thirty men from here under your authority, and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. So again, Zedekiah, Okay, Jeremiah, you don't have to go back to the jail. Okay, throw Jeremiah into the do what you want to him. Okay, rescue Jeremiah. I mean, this guy. I mean, this, this guy is, is, is just ridiculous. He's obviously, he's not fit to be a king. He's not fit to be a king. So, then verse 11 is cool. So, Eben Melech took the men under his authority and went into the king's palace to a place beneath the storeroom and took from their worn-out clothes and worn-out rags and let them down by ropes into the cistern to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Now put these worn-out clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse. I love this for several reasons. We've already seen his Ebimelech's courage, but now you see his care. In the midst of this, you know, situation that's, you know, fast-paced and dramatic, this scene, you know, he takes the time to care about Jeremiah's armpits. I mean, that's pretty I mean, he doesn't want rope burn on Jeremiah's armpits. So he goes and gets some old clothes and rags and lowers them down and says, put these under your armpits you know, to protect yourself and then we'll pull you out. He takes the time to care for Jeremiah. I mean, that's going the extra mile. That's going the extra mile. I, I'm not sure. I think this, this scene might be part of Chick-fil-A's training. I don't know. I don't know. This may be. <laughs> in terms of caring for people, you know, might be part of their training. But anyway, but you see it here, this care, and there's a lot to to learn from that. You know, care for people, take the time to go the the extra step, take the extra effort. You know, that that's just really, really powerful. The courage and the care. You see the heart of this man. This man has a good heart. It's a good hearted man.
So they pull him out. And verse 14, Then King Zedekiah sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance that is in the house of the Lord. And said to, the king said to Jeremiah, I'm going to ask you something. Do not hide anything from me. Then Jer Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not certainly put me to death? Besides, if I give you advice, you won't listen to me. <laughs> but King Zedekiah swore to Jeremiah in secret, saying, As the Lord lives, who made this life for us, surely I would not put you to death, nor give you over to the hand of these men who are seeking your life. So as the scene goes on, Jeremiah gives Zedekiah an opportunity to save himself and his people. But Zedekiah, just as Jeremiah said, you're not going to listen, you know, Jeremiah, Zedekiah rejects it. It's a sad ending for Zedekiah. Zedekiah runs you know, from the scene, tries to escape with some of his people. He's captured. King Nebuchadnezzar has Zedekiah's sons killed in front of him. And then Zedekiah's eyes are poked out. So the last scene, the last thing he sees with his eyes is the death of his sons. It didn't have to be that way. If he had had the humility to listen, but his pride brought about, brought about his own destruction. So next chapter in verse 11, it says, Now, king, now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave orders about Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, saying, Take him and look after him and do nothing harmful to him, but rather deal with him just as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had sent word along with Nebuzaradan, um, the Rabseris, and Nergalasazara, the Ragmab, and all the leading officials of the king of Babylon. There's a whole lot of letters. Then even sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the guardhouse and entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Japhon, to take him home. So he stayed among the people. Again, Jeremiah was in God's hands. And King Nebuchadnezzar um, you know, acts justly with him and actually gives him this preferential treatment of, hey, do whatever Jeremiah tells you to do. Jeremiah had the option. He could have gone to Babylon. But he chose to stay where he was among um, the people who were left in the land. You remember some people have, you know, were obviously taken at different points in time by the Babylonians, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, um, as their Babylonian names are, uh, you know, taken from Israel in these different captivities. Uh, but Jeremiah is given this special privilege of you can, you can go where you want to go. You can do what you want to do. And that we know was from the Lord. But in verse 15, because God hasn't forgotten about Ebed-Melech, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was confined in the court of the guardhouse, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring my words on this city for disaster and not for prosperity, and they will take place before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you will not be given into the hand of the men whom you dread. For I, certainly, I will certainly rescue you, and you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as a prize, because you have trusted in me, declares the Lord. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to Eben Melech the Ethiopian, Hey, you know, that destruction, you know, that, this is a destruction that Zedekiah had tried to run from, you know, tried to save his own skin. But, you know, that destruction, um, you know, it's going to come. But I'm going to deliver you. God promises Abed-Melech his life as a prize. That the men who, try, who, who he dreads, the men who's, who he lives in fear of, will not be able to touch him. 
And the reason the Lord gives, it says, because you have trusted in me. You see, we see you know, the, the, the courage and the care that Ebed-Melech had in, in how he rescues Jeremiah. But the heart behind it, the Lord sees. The motivation. That there weren't ulterior motives, but that his motives, the motives, uh, the, the key motive of Ebed-Melech was that he trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. Now, again, he says, as you see, in, um, as we've been reading in these sections, every time Ebed-Melech is mentioned, it's Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian. Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian. Or yours might say Cushite, same thing. Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian. Why? Why? Why does it say that? Because God is making a, a, a contrast by the one who the Hebrews would have considered the outsider, the foreigner, the one distance from God. He's making a contrast between his heart of faith and how the majority of people in Israel in this time who were viewed themselves as, and rightly so to a certain degree, the people of God. The ones entrusted with the law you know, and the prophets. The ones who are you know, set in position to be right with God. And that contrast is made. And throughout the scriptures we see this. It's not one's ethnicity. It's not one's language. It's not one's nation that makes someone right with God. Throughout the scriptures we see this message very clearly. And here, Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian is being used as this key example of this. Key example of this. Because God knows his ultimate you know, plan in all of this. That Israel was to be you know, a blessing to the nations. Again, that promise to Abraham, that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. It's just the mercy of God is over, overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. And so we're thankful this morning for this. And then, you know, to, to kind of follow, as I follow through, the follow through on the New Testament side, in Acts chapter 8, you have the Ethiopian eunuch riding south from Jerusalem, and Philip, um, the Lord sends him and says, you know, tells him to overtake you know, the chariot. Philip gets on his horse, takes off, catches up with the chariot, not literal horse, like running fast horse, and uh, catches up with the chariot, and the man's reading from Isaiah the prophet, and Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I understand unless somebody tells me? And so Philip explains the gospel to them. And then they, you know, in that process, there's obviously a, a faith in Jesus that takes play there, place there. And they get to water and the Ethiopian says, what hinders me from being baptized? And there, he, you know, he makes that public profession of faith. As he's baptized... And then he goes back to Ethiopia, and you know we know from the historical record that there was, you know, thriving church in Ethiopia, you know, before there was ever a, a you know, thriving church in in northern Europe. Uh, but we for, we forget again forgotten heroes. You know, we forget these parts of the stories so often because we tend to see things through our own cultural, you know, lenses. But in the scriptures, the, the, the cool thing is when God gathers his people from all the nations and he says in the Psalms that basically that every person 
you know, all of his people from all the nations have rights of citizenship in Jerusalem. All of his people. You know, and, and again, that New Testament theme of, you know, we're strangers here. And we're citizens of a different kingdom. The kingdom of God. So we have to be very careful that we keep things in perspective or we can easily lose sight about what's really you know, important and our, our highest ideals and our highest values. And I'm afraid that oftentimes people who claim the name of the Lord lose sight. Lose sight of what our, our key things are. You know, we've seen that here, you know, recently. I mean, it's been all over the news. So just, you know, the whole Nike, Colin Kaepernick, you know, thing. And I mean, I, I sat there and I almost, I mean, I felt like, you know, I don't know if you, some of you remember Alan Iverson's, like, we're talking about practice. We're talking about practice. We're talking about the game. We're talking about practice. And, and sometimes for believers, I'm just like, believers, if you say you're a believer in the Lord, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, talking about Kaepernick. And, and I'm not saying it's an important issue. I mean, we talk. I mean, but in terms of what's really important in life, you know, people are getting, you know, all agitated, all angry. And it's like, is that anger going to lead anybody to the kingdom of God? Is that is is on either side of it? Is is anger? And, and, you know, hatred of one group of people over, or another group of people going to help anybody find the kingdom of God? And I'm afraid that many in this nation who claim the name of the Lord have forgotten their first citizenship. That citizenship of heaven is primary. And if you're a follower of Jesus, citizenship of heaven is permanent. And I don't care what nation it is on this earth and how much you love it. It's temporary. It's temporary. It is not going to last. It is not. The kingdoms of this world are temporary things. And they allow as long as God allows them to allow. And when a particular nation has power and authority over others, it is allowed to have it until God takes it away. That's it. And when God says it's done, it's done. But the kingdom of God is permanent. And that's where our focus and our attention has to be. And I think the enemy so many times just wants us to get distracted. It's just another distraction. And we deal with a million and one distractions in this life, on this earth, from the the things that are truly important. And we have to be careful that we don't get swallowed up by that game. game. The enemy's game of distraction. He doesn't care if you're passionate about something. As long as we're not passionate about Jesus and his gospel. As long as we're not passionate for reaching the nations with, you know, all the people with his love and his grace and his power. You can have you passionate about anything else, just not Jesus and his gospel. So when, next, time, next time you get riled up about anything in any direction, you've got to ask yourself the question. Am I about to put this over my passion for Jesus? Am I about to put this over my priority to love God and love my neighbor and to share the good news of Jesus? Now there's things that we use in this world just as it's done throughout the scriptures to point people to Jesus. But if at the end of the day, whatever our position is, or whatever we're doing is, 
at the end, the end result isn't that we're using it to point people to Jesus, then what are we doing? It's got to be to point people to Jesus. If we want to talk about injustice in this world, it should be, you know, that at the end of that conversation, we're talking about, but the justice of God is coming. And are we ready? The justice of God is coming. And so we need to have the courage in this world. And I'm just telling you, in this world, again, it's, the, it's just like in the time that Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech find themselves in. That people don't want to hear, people don't want to hear about consequence for wickedness. Now, every place is different, but I'm talking about specifically our culture in the United States of America. People don't want to hear that they've done wickedly. People don't want to hear that the consequences for wickedness is God's judgment. I mean, we are afraid to say it. And and we'll always use this excuse. We'll always use this reasoning. Well, compared to other nations, you know, we're a pretty good nation. You know what? I'll give you that. I'll give you that. We are a wicked people. I'll give you that comparatively, we are less wicked than many. If, if, that's what you, if that makes you feel better, if that makes you feel better about yourself and about your nation, when you sleep, go to bed at night, you are less wicked than the most wicked. <laughs> Does that make you happy? You know, but we are a wicked, as a people in the United States of America, we are a wicked people in need of a merciful God to forgive us. We need, you know, people in. We think, I mean, what arrogance to think that that people in the United States of America would need less forgiveness than people in other places. Would need less the mercy of God. Would need less the grace of God. Is really is that a position that any of us want to take? God, I need less of your mercy than other people. Are you kidding me? No, we need mercy. But I'm telling you, there are a lot of people who will hate me, will absolutely hate me when I say the United States of America has done wickedly before a pure and holy God. That's a, that's a sad thing. It's a sad thing that many of the people that would hate me for saying that read the same Bible that I read. Claim to follow the same Jesus that I follow. That's a sad thing. Because that's just not dealing with reality. That's where national pride gets in the way of objective reality of the scripture. All peoples are wicked before a holy and righteous God. We need his mercy just like these people but why did why that message Romans chapter 1 why the message that the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience why that message because Romans chapter 5 but God shows us his great love and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us well you can't get to the but God shows us his great love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you don't acknowledge chapter 1, that we're wicked. That we're sinful, that we're sinners. There's, there's no reason for God to send Jesus to die for us if we're not sinful. If we're not wicked. There's no reason. But there is reason. We have to agree with what the scripture says about us as human beings. And then we appreciate his grace more. We appreciate his mercy more because I don't deserve the least of God's mercies. And yet God puts on human flesh and comes and lives amongst us and dies an awful death. And the physical is nothing compared to the spiritual of all the sins, of all of my sins and the sins of this world being placed on him. And the separation 
in the unity of God, that separation from that moment of time where the sin of the world is on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's because of that great love and that great mercy that we have the privilege to come and take that bread and that cup this morning and to give thanks to a holy and righteous God for his great mercy for us. But if we don't think we've done that much that we would need to deserve that mercy, I'm afraid we won't be nearly as thankful as we should be. So let's give thanks to the Lord this morning. And like Ebed-Melech, seek to be courageous, seek to care for people in their need, to be bold in the face of wickedness and adversity, to be willing to take risk, to sacrifice, and to do so from pure motives, from the fact that we trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your word that is so powerful. So truthful. Lord, we pray that you would humble us before you this morning, that we would have thanks. Lord, we're not deserving of the least of your mercies, yet you've given us your Son. You've made us part of your family. You give us a seat at your table. As we take that bread and that cup, we give you thanks this morning and we say, Lord, we're thankful and you've given us so, so much. Help us to be courageous. Help us to care. Help us to be people of faith. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen.